Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene, and I have a question to start things off this week. How does the world of professional hockey and business relate to each other? Well, you're about to find out as I interview my first former professional athlete for the podcast. His name is Mike McKee, and he is the CEO at Observe It, a company that is rapidly growing in Boston's massive security cluster. Mike played professional hockey for the Quebec Nordiques before the franchise relocated to Colorado and became the Avalanche. Upon entering the business world, he graduated from Harvard Business School and later became an executive at PTC and Rapid7 before joining Observe It as CEO. In this episode, we cover lots and lots of great topics, like what playing professional hockey taught him about the business world and adversity, how he charted his way through lots of different roles to the point of landing a CEO position at a venture-backed company, the details on his hire-slow philosophy, and why he talks people out of jobs, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Can you believe this is the 21st episode of our VentureFizz podcast? That flew by so quickly, and I hope you've been enjoying each episode. If you have, then I really need your help. Please leave us a five-star review. Why does that matter? Well, it helps other people discover this podcast and get these great stories out there. So thanks so much in advance. Okay, without further ado, here's my interview with Mike. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Keith. Thank you. So uh, I'm excited because you're the first guest I've ever had on this podcast that actually has his own trading card from playing professional sports. So we're going to talk about that in a bit, but let's just dive right into your background. Where'd you grow up? What'd your parents do for work? Yeah, no, thanks, Keith. So uh, I may have had a trading card. The trading value is about 23 cents. So uh, <laughs> it's not that valuable or anything you should be that excited about. Uh, so I grew up, uh, you may have heard it when I say about, uh, I grew up in Toronto, Canada. Uh, my mom was a high school English teacher for 30 years. My dad was a banker uh, that lent uh, money to small businesses and had two younger brothers and like a lot of Canadians, played a lot of hockey and uh, enjoyed it a lot. And then you ended up at Princeton. What brought you to Princeton? Yeah, good question. I was recruited to play hockey there and I was a really late bloomer. So the only way I wasn't going to go to a Canadian university, which is really good, was if I could get uh, you know, both the opportunity to play division one hockey as well as get a good education. And what I didn't realize is that basketball is a lot more popular at Princeton than hockey. And coming from Canada, we would have our Saturday night games and the students would come to the hockey game in the third period after the basketball game, which was a little humbling. Uh, but it was still a great experience from an education perspective and from a hockey perspective. So not only were you playing Division One hockey, but according to your LinkedIn profile, you're running a 50-person on-campus pizza business. So um, what was that all about? It was a great experience. Uh, you know, I was on financial aid. So my first couple of years at Princeton, I had a job, you know, seven bucks an hour showing slides or film or whatever. And Princeton's got a very good program where there's a bunch of student agencies, you know, from newspaper to DVD. It wasn't DVDs back then video cassettes to Tiger Pizza. And my roommate and I put an application in to run the business. And when we took it over, it was only 10 employees. They sold 100 pizzas a week if they were lucky. And by the time we were finished, it was 50 student employees and we were selling 100 pizzas a night. And I have to say the first time, it was the first time that I got that adrenaline rush outside of sports was when we sold 100 pizzas in a night. And it was just a really, really good experience. It's actually in many ways led me to where I am right now. Had the entrepreneurial spirit back in college even. 
Yeah, no, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we would be competing against Teresa's and Victor's and the other local pizza places, and we had to figure out how to beat them, and we had to get folks all excited about uh, working for Tiger Pizza. We had to make sure the drivers weren't stealing too much cash from us. Uh, so a lot of business lessons that we learned. That's great. And then obviously you had a successful college career if you were drafted by the Quebec Nordiques, which is now the Colorado Avalanche. So um, talk to us about playing hockey, professional hockey, because obviously, you know, you don't start out when you get drafted by a hockey team, you don't typically start out playing for the big team, right? For the big show. So I'm sure there was some minor league hockey experience that you had first. Yeah, the good old bus leagues. Uh, lots of time on the iron lung, as they used to call it. Uh, I was down in the minors uh, in the east coast of Canada in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And then my first season, I got sent down even a level lower to the East Coast Hockey League, sometimes known as the Cocktail League. And for those that are old enough to have seen the movie Slapshot, uh, it is Slapshot. And <laughs> it, was a, uh, it was a learning experience. It was actually you know, a really good experience, really hospitable people down there. Uh, but it was a, a unique lifestyle where there's uh, lots of time on the bus, lots of time traveling, lots of downtime. But being Canadian, uh, sort of every kid's dream to get a chance to play in the NHL. And quite often, that's the path you have to take. Now, the the experience being a professional hockey player, because you did end up making it to the big show and you played for the actual the legit franchise team, right? I did. I had uh, I played 48 games, uh, scored a whopping three goals. Uh, one of them was actually Thanksgiving 1993 against Wayne Gretzky and the LA Kings. So that was exciting. Uh, awesome. But yeah, no, I was uh, a little bit more than a cup of coffee, uh, pretty much a whole season, uh, which was great. Now, what, what did the experience <sighs> as a professional hockey player teach you about, you know, now obviously you're in the business world. So what did it teach you, like lessons learned there? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, you know, playing in the minors and the minors of the minors, uh, you have to deal with adversity and you have to work your way up. And it is a lot of hard work like anything else. And whether, you know, you don't always get right to where you want to be out of the gates. So, you know, I work very hard. Uh, you know, one thing about knowing what your boss cares about, I think matters. Uh, the, the coach of the Quebec Nordiques uh, cared a lot about physical fitness. And my second year, I came back and won the Iron Lung Award for being the best conditioned athlete at training camp. And I think that helped me get some exhibition games um, that second season and then ultimately get called up a little bit later in the season. But there's also a lot of luck, uh, you know, right place, right time. I think entrepreneurs would say the same thing. And it so happened I was playing in the minors and one guy's wife was having a baby and one guy got hurt and I got called up and was fortunate enough to play well when I got called up. So. So you got to, you know, work hard and hopefully put yourself in a position to get lucky. But luck plays a large role in it for sure. And then from there, obviously, you did transition into the business world. So what was that, you know, what was what caused that transition? And then would you start out by doing? Yeah, thanks. Keith. So unfortunately, it was concussions uh, back before concussions were as big a deal as they are now. But uh, I was knocked out my first day of training camp my first year. So maybe I should have seen it coming. Uh, I then had another couple of really bad concussions when playing. And, you know, back then you'd get the concussion and you'd be on the ice the next shift, uh, which isn't very healthy. But what was happening is I was getting them a little bit too easily. And fortunately, it was, uh, you know, got advice from a doctor who's very well known in the field now. Dr. Charles, Dr. Charles Tatters advised me to hang up the blades. So I retired at the ripe old age of 26 and 
you know, since going back to the pizza business, I'd always been really passionate about entrepreneurism and building businesses. And in many respects, it's a lot like hockey in that it's a team sport uh, succeeding in business and you're competing against lots of other businesses. You got to figure out how to beat them. So I ended up going into investment banking at Goldman Sachs down in New York, uh, which was a great experience, a phenomenal firm, really strong culture. I learned a lot about how important a culture culture is to a company. And I uh, got some really good experience there before going to business school. Great. And then after Harvard Business School, you went on to do strategy consulting at McKinsey, right? I did that during uh, my first and second year at business school. Uh, it was a good experience, obviously a great firm, but much like my experience banking, I always wanted to be on the other side of the table. So mm -hmm. when I was in banking, we'd help companies raise money or buy other companies. And I always wanted to know what happened. Did it work out? What they did with the money? Uh, similarly, on the consulting side, you know, we give advice to businesses on how to overcome different challenges. And I always want to know whether that advice worked or not. So after business school, I moved into the technology industry because there's obviously lots of change there, lots of businesses popping up. Uh, one of the first businesses I, I was at was called highwire.com, which was effectively internets for high schools. And it was a classic uh, dot-com bomb, I guess, where we raised $40 million from some very reputable venture capital firms. And we spent $42 million. And clearly, I missed some of the classes at business school where there's only one reason <laughs> businesses fail. They run out of money. Right. And when you spend more money than you have, that's not a good thing. Uh, but it was, it was a great learning experience. You know, the old adage, you learn more from your failure, failures than your successes uh, was very true. So was able to learn a lot from that experience, despite the fact that it didn't work out that well. And then you ended up at uh, PTC, which obviously has a rich foundation of, uh, you know, a great company in Boston, but also so many great alumni. Um, throughout your career at PTC, you were in a number of different roles. So could you talk about the, your career progression? Because you were in different facets of the business each step along the way. Yeah. And that was intentional in a lot of ways. And I'm very thankful to PTC for giving me lots of different opportunities. But you know, I very much wanted to run another pizza business, uh, you know, i.e. be a general manager uh, in the technology field. And as a result, I tried to get exposure to as many different functions as possible at PTC. <coughs> Excuse me. So I started out in finance, uh, which was a lot of my background. And then it quickly became clear that PTC was a very engineering and sales driven culture. So I became the first ever finance person to go carry a bag in sales, which I did for 15 quarters. And for people that know PTC, uh, it's hard driving and uh, you learn how yeah. to sell pretty quickly. I've had so, friends in that seat and it's not an easy seat to be in. No, it's not, but it's arguably the most important position in the company. And it's not until someone's willing to cut a check and give you money that you truly understand whether you've got something of value. And it was a, a great place to learn that. It was a great place to learn the market that PTC was in. Uh, so I did that for almost four years. And then I moved to the services organization. Uh, as that was growing and really trying to make customers successful with the software. So it was great to have the opportunity to be involved in services. I was also lucky enough to be an expat over in France for four years, running part of the European and Asian services business, which was great because being in North America and you're like, oh gosh, why are all these, these managers say that things have to be done differently in Italy than Sweden than the UK than Thailand, Taiwan, Japan. And you realize once you're over there that 
they're very, very different cultures and business is handled very differently. So you get a real appreciation for what it takes to build a global business. Uh, so I was very appreciative of that experience there. And you ended up at Rapid7 after. Uh, how'd you get connected with them? I did. I don't know if I should say this or if this will make the cuts or anything, but I came back from France and it was a little bit like Groundhog Day, uh, going back to the same corporate headquarters. Uh, and I was very itchy to try and work with a smaller business. Um, I guess I'd been involved a little bit with the business of PTC on the services side. So was fortunate enough to get hooked up with the folks at Rapid7 through Bain Capital Ventures. <coughs> I knew some of the folks there and they were aware of my services background and my entrepreneurial desires and fortunately put me in touch with Rapid7 back when it was about a 300 person, $50 million company looking to build out its services and customer success function. So went there, uh, really liked the management team. There's a little bit of a funny story in that I'd done a phone interview there and it was during a big snowstorm, which is a pretty appropriate topic given the number of Nor'easters this year. And I actually didn't think the phone interview went very well. And they gave me the old line, oh yeah, we'll call you in a couple months. Uh, everyone's busy right now. So I thought that was the polite way of blowing me off. Uh, but sure enough, a couple months passed and they called me up and they said, okay, we're ready to have you come in. And like I said, I, the interview hadn't gone very well either way, the phone interview. So I figured ah, I better go, I'll go interview for practice. You know, it's a good thing to practice your interviewing skills and stuff like that. And sure enough, I went down, really, really like the people, the management team, Corey Thomas, the CEO is just a phenomenal person who I've learned so much from. And obviously being in cybersecurity is a great space. So was lucky enough to uh, get in there, uh, you know, raise right the company was really taking off. And you, like you said, taken off, right? So you were there through the IPO, right? I was, yeah, it was pretty exciting. You know, I was. Uh, Were you on the podium that day, like with the ring? I was down at NASDAQ, yeah. And, you know, it was a little bit like I, I was thinking when I went down there and played at Madison Square Gardens. And, you know, everyone was making a big deal of, you know, being there for the opening of or the, you know, when the company goes live on the NASDAQ exchange. And I was like, ah, you know, how big a deal it can be. You know, I played in these big ranks. But it was actually a really, really exciting event. Uh, you know, it's an amazing milestone hit. And when you see the other photos of other companies going public down on the walls of the NASDAQ offices, you realize that very few companies get to that milestone. Mm -hmm. And to be there with the founders of the business that had started it more than 10 years ago and many of the executives that had taken it through, you know, a lot of adversity and ups and downs and gotten it to that point really was uh, a rewarding and exciting experience. A quick sidestep. So you mentioned, um, you know, Bain brought you into Rapid7. How, how are you familiar with the folks over at Bain? PT is a very large company, right? Very, you know, it was publicly traded. So, you know, were you just well networked and, or how did you get on the radar of Bain? Yeah, good question. I'm kind of winding it back. Uh, you know, I have friends from business school that had been involved in venture back companies. Uh, as I remember back now, I think it was uh, a good friend of mine, Graham Grant, who was at Profit Logic, that was the CEO of Scott Friend. And Scott Friend had recently moved to become an operating partner or a partner, excuse me, at Bain. So I had networked to him and then he put me in touch with some of the infrastructure software guys like Ben Nye and Ben Holtzman. And it was through Ben Holtzman uh, that I was originally introduced to Rapid7. Because I think that's part of the story where now you're CEO of Observe It. 
and they're a Bain back company as well. So I would have to put two and two together. Yeah, no, it was a hundred percent through Bain. It, uh, you know, we had gone public at rapid seven in the summer of 2015. Uh, you know, love the organization, love the culture. Uh, Corey Thomas, like I said, is a phenomenal leader. Wasn't planning on going anywhere. And it was the Bain folks that reached out to Corey and asked if they could speak to me. And Corey being the great guy that he is, I uh, knew that one day when I grew up that, you know, I wanted to try to run something. So he asked me if I uh, wanted to take a look at it. And, you know, Corey can be pretty short sometimes. So he just mentioned, uh, that's all he said to me. He didn't mention the company name or anything. And, you know, we'd moved back from France, like I said, not too many years before. So I didn't know if the company was in Boston, in New York, in Silicon Valley. And I can remember calling up Ben Nye, the partner from, from Bain, uh, sitting outside my kid's school. And he tells me the name of the company, Observe It. And all I'm doing is looking online to see if it's in Boston because I didn't want to move my family again. And I didn't really care whether Observe It like, made hockey sticks or pizzas or cybersecurity software. I was just relieved. At first, it was uh, in Boston. Actually, I, I saw that it was in Tel Aviv at first. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is an opportunity in Tel Aviv because uh, that's where the company was founded. But then I realized they had offices in Tel Aviv until Bain invested in, and they opened their, their headquarters here. Uh, obviously, once I got through that first screen, I spent a long time taking a look at it, you know, a good five or six weeks because, like I said, I was a, you know, very happy at Rapid7. Uh, but I was very impressed by what I saw. I was impressed by the technology. I tracked down a bunch of customers that were joint Observant and Rapid7 customers. They said great things about the product, great things about the product, and uh, made the jump in right at the beginning of 2016. That's great. What does Observant do? Uh, like I said, it's in the cybersecurity space, much like Rapid7. Uh, unlike a lot of cybersecurity companies that focused on the external threats that you hear about all the time, ransomware, malware, hackers. Uh, Observer's focus purely on the insider threat or people. And what we help organizations do is we help them detect those insider threats, let them know when people are doing things outside of security policies. We help organizations quickly figure out whether it's someone just making a mistake or they don't know what they're doing or they're actually doing something bad. Uh, so helping them with that investigation process. And ultimately what we're trying to help companies do is stop employees or contractors or vendors from sending files out of uh, proprietary information that they shouldn't. You know, obviously, Edward Snowden was the poster boy for a long time uh, from the NSA sending out documents. Uh, Anthony Lewandowski, the engineer from Google who went to Uber with all the self-driving car technologies, another kind of insider threat poster boy. But insider threat's one of those things that people don't talk about as much. It's easy to talk about a hacker. It's easy to talk about bad guys from Russia or China. It's not so easy to talk about someone that you've given a badge to, given access to all of the crown jewels internally that all of a sudden, for whatever reason, is sending files out that they shouldn't. So, you know, our sole focus is to help organizations identify those threats and ultimately eliminate them. Because that is, from what I've gathered, like insider threats are sometimes more of an issue than external threats, right? Yeah, I know one of our partners uh, used to be in the CIA for a long time, and his expression is, there's a lot more external threats, but internal threats are the most dangerous because they're walking in the door every day. They've got access to lots of information. They can take it out in bits and pieces. They can take it all out all at once, and they know what's valuable. So, you know, fortunately... Uh, you know, most employees and most contractors follow the rules, uh, but there are exceptions. Uh, and 
having visibility and getting early warning signs to those exceptions of people, you know, veering outside the lines. Uh, like I said, whether it's accidentally or maliciously is an area of, you know, real risk that a lot of organizations want visibility on. And if you look at all the different studies around the big data breaches, you know, over half the time it involves a person on the inside doing something that they shouldn't have. And how does the software work? Is it just like tracking what a employee is doing on their uh, laptop or, hey, they're downloading a file that they shouldn't or they're sending, you know, sensitive documents external or like how does, how does it work? Yeah, no, those are all good examples, Keith. So we have an agent or a piece of software on folks' laptops, desktops, servers, and we are able to see the user activity, what people are doing. And the examples you just gave of sending out a large file at a strange hour, plugging in a USB or going to a cloud file sharing service are all examples of behaviors that might be a concern. And, you know, we have 250 insider threat alerts, which come from the Carnegie Mellon Insider Threat Institute, as well as our 1700 customers who we work with that tell us what are indicators that people are doing things that they normally don't or that are outside security policies. So we take the data that we're able to collect from our agent. We have these alerts and we send those alerts either to the security team uh, is one way that we help decrease that risk. Uh, we can also have a prompt come up on the screen. So maybe I shouldn't be saying this about Rapid7, but uh, I remember our head of security there giving me a hard time for using Dropbox. And I'm like, Josh, you know, I'm using Dropbox to share with the consultants and our support folks because we need a way to share information. He's like, Mike, we use box.com, not Dropbox. And I'm like, Josh, I had no idea. So what our software would allow Josh to do in this particular case, the head of security at Rapid7 is a prompt that would come up and say, hey, Mike, don't you realize we use box.com, not Dropbox? So reinforce the security policies is the second way to mitigate that risk. And the third way is to shut down the application that I'm in. So we give organizations a spectrum of options once those alerts go off to try to decrease that insider threat risk. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, like you said, like most employees are not trying to be malicious. They're just doing something because they don't know. And it's yeah, and I mean, that reminder. The joke I always make is I'm often at a you know security conference. I might be presenting. Uh, the present uh, the conference organizer wants my the latest version of my presentation. And of course, I've fixed it up on the plane ride down there. So I plug in a USB drive. I give them the USB drive. And then I plug that USB drive back into my computer. And like, that's a dumb move. Uh, and I'm just trying to get my job done. So right. quite often it's people just trying to do their job that they might be putting the organization at risk without realizing it. So that's where those you know alerts and detecting that comes up and those the ability to have a notification prompt come up and remind them of those security policies. And then once again, you know, again, where there's smoke, there's fire. The whole idea of you know, normally someone does something on the inside. Normally there's some indicators along the way that they're behaving in a way that they normally don't. You know, our software will tell you what applications you spend the most time in. And if you're in sales, well, you'll be in Salesforce, you'll be on LinkedIn, you'll be in Outlook. If all of a sudden you're in the financial application for the company, that looks a little weird. Uh, and that could be an indicator that, you know, maybe that's an insider threat or you're about to send a file out that you shouldn't. Let's talk about your career path to getting to the point where you're CEO of a venture-backed company. Like, what is it about your background that you think set you up for success in that type of role? Yeah, good question. I mean, part of it's just a passion for business, you know, kind of going back to the pizza business. 
you know, it was really fun trying to figure out how to market the product. It was really fun trying to improve the, you know, how, how to make a pizza and, you know, train people so they're not throwing the dough ball on the floor and we're not spending too much money on cheese and we've got the right pricing and we're competing. So, you know, I'm really, it's, it's really fun. I often say it's like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, you got to figure out who you're up against, how you're going to beat them. Then you got to put the team together uh, that's excited about, you know, taking that challenge of being that competition. So, you know, a kind of following that pot, that passion. And there's the competitive element to it, which goes back to hockey as well, which is, you know, I like beating Teresa's and Victor's in pizza and selling more pizzas than they did in the same way that I like being beating our cybersecurity competitors uh, that are in our space. So there's a passion. And then I was, you know, fortunate enough to get a lot of really good experiences uh, in business. And there really is no substitute for, you know, being in the shoes of a salesperson or running a services organization or being in finance. And I was fortunate enough to get a lot of different experiences in different areas of business that really helped me appreciate the challenges of those different functions and ideally help them work with the other functions and compete well as a business. Were there any challenges once you stepped into the CEO role that you weren't expecting that you're like, wow, and you know, advice you give to others when you finally make it your way into that type of role? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I can say oh shit moments on this podcast or not, <laughs> but uh, one of the board members, uh, Jack Sweeney, who's been a great mentor for me. Uh, you know, he's run eight different companies, and he's like, Mike, you may think you know a lot coming into this, and you may think you've done a lot of due diligence, but you're gonna have a lot of those oh shit moments, uh, and that just happened. So I would say that you know, prepare for those moments. Uh, you know. I've gotten a lot of advice and I've needed a lot of advice through the, through the process, but there's the, you know, the idea of leaders absorb anxiety, not amplify anxiety. So you, you're going to have those bumps in the road and you want to just maintain calmness, maintain structure and work through them uh, is very, very important. Uh, another thing that I've learned is that CEO stands for chief explainer officer <laughs> you can never communicate enough with people. And, you know, when you're working in a particular function, you think, okay, I have to do ABC today, like get that off the list. And as a chief explainer officer, a lot of your time is just making sure you've got the right people in the company, make sure they are, you know, aware of what they're trying to do, able, you know, take away barriers for them to be successful in what they're doing obviously working well together with other folks. And, you know, related to that, one of the things I learned at Rapid7 is the importance of culture. And you hear that all the time and it can be, you know, values on a wall that everyone ignores, but it really is important to have a culture and to always be trying to improve that culture. And as it pertains to observe it with offices in Tel Aviv and Boston and employees in Singapore and the UK and San Francisco, maintain that culture and really building it so that there's consistency across those different locations so that you can communicate well together and collaborate well together as a team is super, super important. Yeah, no doubt culture is so critical. And to your point, Rapid7 is definitely known for having a very strong, robust culture. And Christina Luconi has just a, done an amazing job with that. She really has. No, and she actually, so we hired a VP of People Strategy here and Christina Luconi was the last interview of that person. And really? She actually had full decision-making authority. If she said no, it was no. If she said yes, it was yes. Despite <laughs> the fact that, you know, we'd all interviewed uh, this woman, Christian Thornby. And, 
Christina, you know, I learned an amazing amount from her about building culture at Rapid7, and she's been good enough to share a lot of that uh, with Kristen and with the team here, which has been super helpful. Now, the, kind of going down this path of hiring and building the team, what are some of the mistakes you've seen people make when it comes to hiring? <laughs> uh, this is uh, Ben Nye, the board member from Bain Capital. Uh, he's got the expression, don't squint. So it's very easy to squint and you squint, it looks okay. Mm-hmm. You actually open your eyes and look more clearly. There's some blemishes. And, you know, take a lot of time through the hiring process. We try to be incredibly transparent. I always joke that if there's a candidate that I like, I try to talk them out of the job at a certain point in the interview process because I want to make sure that, you know, it's a two-way street. I want to make sure they're up for the challenge. And a lot of the time, you know, the more transparent you are with people about the challenges, it's a great way to screen folks. So we take a lot of time. We do psychological tests. They meet lots of team members. And I tell people, listen, anyone who doesn't want to invest the time trying to figure out whether this is a place they want to come to isn't the right kind of person. So the more honest and transparent it can be both ways where we're truly interviewing each other, the better is my experience. Yeah. No. So my background being a, a recruiter, it's definitely so important that the person knows exactly what they're getting into. And uh, I've done some of the similar things of just almost like talking people out of it, right? Yeah. You know, letting them convince you that they're ready for that job and they're ready to step up to the plate. Yeah, and it's okay. I mean, we just we just lost a candidate who actually made it, who verbally accepted, and it was a great candidate, great guy, done tons of research on the company, super passionate. But you know, the company was at counter offered, and he'd been with that company since the beginning. And you know, I'm always I had a number of conversations with him, and I tried to be very open about saying, "Hey, listen." I'll tell you when I'm being objective and I'm telling you when I'm being subjective. And, you know, I really tried to put an objective lens on his decision. And even though it wasn't in our favor at the end, I think given all the factors involved, I think he made a good decision. And that's better, I think, than just trying to sell people in because then you sell them in and it's either, you know, not what they're expecting or they wish they hadn't changed jobs or, you know, it's uh, like I said, it's a two way process. And, you know, we've been very fortunate. We had uh, 3% attrition last year, which given the amount of change in the company, I think is really good. And I can tell you exactly where the four people that left on their own went, you know, one got married and want to travel the world for a year. So, you know, so far it's worked touch wood, but much like building culture, uh, and it's obviously intricately involved with having good people, you got to work at it all the time. And having a performance management system where you're having real conversations with people on a regular basis is something that we're adamant about. So in the same way that we're kind of adamant about really spending a lot of time interviewing people on the way in, we want to keep interviewing them when they're here and making sure that they're growing in the way that they want to grow and you know they're growing in the way that we want them to grow uh, and continue to be very transparent in that front as well. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great point. The other thing you're doing when you, um, you know, you gave the example of the candidate that, you know, had accepted, but then had a change of heart like that installs such goodwill that that person just totally respects you, the company. Right. And who knows, maybe in the future you're yeah. across again, but it's also just that employment branding magnification of, you know, just a great experience on both sides. And that goes 
so far as far as building up a strong recruitment brand for a company? Yeah, no, I miss the always selling, always recruiting. Mm -hmm. Our adage is here. And to your point, there's lots of conversations I've had. I, I literally just exchanged emails with uh, someone today who was doing you know, kind of doing an informational networking interview. And, you know, we had a real conversation. We went into it as goals and stuff like that. And, you know, the timing wasn't right on either side right now, but he just referred a great sales candidate. Uh, so to your point, they're really, and Ed Nathanson was very helpful with this at Rapid7 in terms of building the brand for the organization there. Uh, you know, I think it's very important that people have a good interview and good employment experience. And, you know, the other thing is people will leave the organization and like, that's okay sometimes, uh, in that there's a, sometimes there's a misalignment in terms of what they think they can do or what you think they can do. Or sometimes there's just an opportunity and they go somewhere else and like, that's okay. Uh, because we want people, obviously we want to provide people with opportunity for a long time and keep them as long as possible. But if they're able to go on and do bigger and better things, that can be good for everybody at the same time. I, I agree with that point too. I mean, so you're a good example of that, right? Rapid Seven. So Corey was like, "Yes, go on and you know lead a company, right? That was the next step in your career." Um, you know, another PTC alum, Brian Halligan, right? The whole HubSpot crew. Yeah, they embrace you know people. You don't want uh, you know people leaving your company because they're unhappy. Um, but you, you know, uh, healthy attrition is a good thing where if people are pursuing and furthering their career, it again, creates a great positive vibe. And it's, you know, you have a whole slew of HubSpot alumni that are doing amazing things. And Darmesh and Brian really embraced that. Yeah. No, I remember Alan Matthews, one of the founders of rapid seven and the chairman, when I told him that I was leaving, it was tough. And his first reaction is that's great news. And I was not exactly the reaction I was hoping for. I was a little bit taken back at first when he tells you it's great news that you're leaving. Uh, but when we got to talking about it, he's like, Mike, you know, you came here, you really helped the company grow. Uh, and now you're going on to bigger and better things. And there's 800 people that saw you do that. And they're going to be like, this is a great place to further my career. So, you know, it's kind of short-term loss, but much larger, longer-term gain to have that reputation of, being the kind of company that really advances people's careers and, you know, really tries to give them as much opportunity as possible. So we, you know, it's super, super important here. One of the great things about the Boston tech scene these days is the massive cluster of security companies. There's so much going on. There's, I mean, we did a, a list. It was probably a couple of years ago now, and there was probably like 40 to 50 companies on that list. And I'm sure it's much larger now. So why, why do you think Boston's such like a hub for cybersecurity companies? Yeah, I mean, these things build on each other, meaning obviously you have RSA here and a bunch of people left RSA, started going to cybersecurity startups. But, you know, you get investors here that, uh, you know, Bain Capital Ventures being an example of one that makes a good couple of good security investments and they're going to make more then they're going to move people around their network. So it very much builds on itself. And, you know, Boston's come a long way in terms of opening up the seaport and the downtown district. And, you know, we're sitting in 200 Clarendon, which used to be known as the Hancock. And I remember when we looked at this building back in 2014, when I was at Rapid7, you know, it was all fancy private equity firms and law firms and stuff like that. There were no tech companies in here. Now it's 25% tech companies. Mm -hmm. So it's become you know, a really good place for young people to get good jobs in good locations. 
And the more good people that get good jobs and good locations, the better those companies do and the more competitive they are. And like I said, it just builds on itself. So the only downside is lots of competition for talent. Uh, and, you know, once again, that speaks to, you know, putting a lot of importance on culture and putting a lot of importance on people and, you know, making yourself as competitive as possible when it comes to retaining the best people. Are there any companies that you admire in the Boston tech scene, maybe in this, you know, I guess in the cybersecurity space or even outside of that world? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I have great admiration for Rapid7, you know, very thankful to the organization, you know, very uh, impressed by the leadership there. Um, so certainly learned a lot. Uh, Aaron Aim over at Kronos is someone who I've been fortunate enough to get to know over the years. Uh, I think they've done a great job building a company there and Aaron's a phenomenal leader. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to work with other technology companies in uh, a CEO form that I'm part of. And, you know, Andrew Bilecki over at Clavio and David Cancel over at Drift and Michael Montero over at Buildium, just to name a few, are other leaders that I'm fortunate enough to interact with on a quarterly basis who have built and are building great companies. So it's really inspiring to see other people, you know, really build strong companies uh, in the Boston area. So what do you do for fun outside of work these days? Do you still get a chance to play hockey at all? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, you know, it's a balancing act. I have four kids, so mm. I coach three of them in hockey right now, which is a nice mental break from work. Although I will say it's frightening the number of parallels between coaching kids in hockey and uh, managing a tech company at times. Uh, so I guess you could argue it's uh, helping me in a lot of different ways. Uh, I do try to play hockey a little bit. There's a, a team called the Canucks, which is a bunch of mostly Canadians that play beer league hockey. Uh, emphasis on beer as opposed to hockey uh, in terms of just getting together in the dressing room afterwards. Sure. So try to stay in shape. I, you know, ride in the Paymass Challenge, which is uh, an event that I think very highly of. It's incredible. Uh, but it's a, a lot of balancing between the kids and business. It was uh, for a little stretch. There was a Boston Tech hockey like open skate type of a thing. I think Brian Kalma. I'd have to fact check that if he was the one who was organizing it. But there was some Boston Tech hockey. At least I, I think they were just you know it wasn't like a formal team structure or anything. It was just like let's you know get open ice and and play. Yeah, and I, I actually well, I don't know if this was the same league, but I remember playing for the PTC team once. Mm -hmm. And in life's ironies, they had the the exact same colors as the Colorado Avalanche. So I thought I'd gone full circle uh, <laughs> back to those days. Right. So Boston's a good city for uh, men's league hockey. And uh, there's definitely a bunch of different teams out there. You know, my requirements are it kind of has to be after nine o'clock at night. Uh, I live out of Newton now, so I play down in Dedham. So uh, logistics matter as much as anything else right now. Sure. Well, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time. This was a lot of fun to learn about your background and there was lots of advice that you shared. So thank you so much for taking the time. And at the end of these conversations, I always like to turn the mic back to you. So certainly feel free to you know, promote anything that is on your radar. Yeah, no, I, I'm impressed. Like I said earlier, Keith, how informed you are about the market and technology. Uh, you know, I feel really lucky to be, you know, in the Boston tech scene right now where there's lots of companies like this. And you know, I would just say, you know, I feel very fortunate to have had a great experience at Rapid7, really help it go from point A to point B. And, you know, we almost doubled last year here at Observe It. So, you know, we've got 
you know, we're on a really nice trajectory right now and uh, it's just a good opportunity. So, uh, as I said before, always selling, always recruiting. So if anyone's worried about insider threats in their organization, Observe It can help a lot. And if anyone wants to get a sense for what the Observer culture is like on the inside and is interested in joining us or considering joining us, I think we have about 15 or 20 job recs open right now. Observe It is hiring. So you can certainly check out all their openings on the Venture Fizz Biz page or their own careers page. Uh, but Mike, thank you so much for your taking the time. This was great. Appreciate it. Yeah, likewise, Keith. Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.